Maya Angelou. She once said, you can't really know where you are going until you know where you have been. That's a really cool quote, but I'll be honest, I didn't hear it from Maya Angelou. I heard it from Will Smith in his character in the movie Hitch. If you remember that movie where he's trying to teach Kevin James how to be a ladies' man. And that's one of the things that Will Smith told Kevin James. If you're going to learn how to date and get a girlfriend, you have to know where you've been to know where you are going. That's kind of some truth to that though, right? When we know where we come from, when we know our past, it gives us almost like a roadmap for us to figure out how to move forward. When we look and know our past, it helps us to see the patterns, the areas where we succeed, the areas where we struggle, areas that have growth. Our past reminds us of the experiences that have impacted who we are today. The, 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 the uh, influences that have shaped how we view life and how we view faith. So that is an important state that we need to look backwards in order to move forward. In fact, we all spent the week watching what's going on with Queen Elizabeth, right? Maybe not all of you, but I know there are some of you that have been watching every minute to see what's happening with Queen Elizabeth as she passed away this past week after 70 years on the throne. And I'll tell you, Queen Elizabeth, she, she, was, a, she was a really good queen. She was a really great queen. But when you know her background... When you know, like, the background that she came from, it really does just, it make her reign more remarkable, right? Because she, she was never supposed to be queen. Her uncle, Edward, was the king, and, and, and so the next in line would have been his son and his son, and it would have gone on that way. But if you remember the story, Edward, he abdicated the throne for love. I would have done that. He abdicated the throne for love. And that caused Queen Elizabeth's dad to then become the king, and she became next in line, and her life was changed because of that decision. Again, where you know, when you know where Queen Elizabeth came from, it really does make like her reign that much more remarkable, knowing she wasn't expecting this. But circumstances led that she was going to become the queen, and who knew she would be as amazing as she was after all these 70 years. What is it for you? When you think about your past, maybe you think about your family background, your ancestors. What are the things in your past have impacted who you are today? That have impacted the way that you live life, the way that you view faith. I'll tell you, for me, well, I'll just tell you, I had a really good week. Here's why I had a really good week. Last Sunday... The Seattle Mariners took the, the series from the Atlanta Braves, and now the Seattle Mariners now have a 99.8% chance of going to the playoffs for the first time in 20 years. Can we get a round? No, you don't have to round of applause for that. I know some of you have no concern or care for that at all, but man, that had me excited. And that was Sunday. And then on Monday night, on Monday night, we got to watch the Seahawks beat the Broncos and Russell Wilson on Monday Night Football when nobody expected it. Now, I know that comes as a surprise to some of you. Did you know that Russell Wilson was traded to the Broncos? He's no longer with the Seahawks. And so, man, that was an exciting game to see the Seahawks beat the guy that left them. Man, it was exciting. I know. <laughs> you might 
gather, I love the Seahawks. I love the Mariners. In fact, my love for those two, two teams came from my dad. I had these memories of my dad sitting in front of the TV, and my dad was legally blind, so it was really funny he's sitting in front of the TV. He'd have the TV on and the radio on at the same time because he wanted to listen to the broadcasters on both the TV and the radio because he loved the Mariners and the Seahawks. And that has shaped me to loving the Mariners. I know some of you are feeling that same thing. Your dad loved the Seahawks and you are following suit, right? <laughs> my, my mom, I remember my mom, she made Christmas special. It was one holiday that she made a big deal about. And all these years later, I'm the Christmas guy. I'm the guy that thinks Christmas music should be played all year round. Amen? Anybody? Anybody feel me? And if you want to throw eggs at me right now, that's okay. I, I love Christmas, and part of that was because my mom made an emphasis to make Christmas special. But on the flip side, those were good things I inherited from my family. But on the flip side, my dad died when I was nine years old. And I'll be honest, like that, that left a hole in my heart and my life where I've always longed for that father figure in my life to, to give me affirmation, to speak into my life. And so as a result of that, I think for the majority of my life, I've struggled with people-pleasing tendencies. Again, when you look backwards to see, man, this has shaped how I live today in the here and in the now. These past few months, we've been in a series that we're calling The Story. We're trying to look, at, not at maybe every chapter and verse of the Bible, but trying to look at the major, uh, major portions of Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, to see how they're not just a bunch of individual stories, not a bunch of individual commands, but actually everything in the Bible is all unified for a single purpose. It's one big story pointing us to Jesus and what Jesus did for us on the cross. So we have spent the last 19 weeks looking throughout the Old Testament, looking at, at Genesis and Exodus and, and some of the prophets and, and looking at all this stuff in the Old Testament. We saw that God created the universe. God was the creator of the universe. And God created mankind. He created us in his own image. And very shortly after it started, sin entered the world. Sin entered the world bringing chaos uh, d disrupting the relationship that we had with him. And this has really been the way that the Old Testament plays out of mankind trying to figure out how do we fix what's gone wrong? How do we fix this relationship that we had with God? How do we fix what's gone wrong in our world? And we saw through the middle of that, through mankind trying to fix it through religion and all these other things, that God repeatedly pointed to a hero. He repeatedly pointed to a promise that he said that I'm going to send a hero who will come and fix all that's gone wrong. That has been the consistent thing, that he would restore to us a relationship with God and fix what's gone wrong in our lives, in our hearts, and in our world. The Old Testament really is a long story all about that, that we can't fix what's gone wrong on our own, and we need to look towards a Savior. And today, today we get to move into the New Testament. The, the passage that Jake read for us this morning, Matthew chapter 1. Okay, look, let's just be honest. Matthew chapter 1, 1 through 17, all those names, is usually one of those texts that we skip over when we're reading our Bible, right? It's like you've got all these names that it's hard to pronounce, and you don't understand, like, what these all have to do with anything. Hey, and by the way, 
Here's a little secret, and, and I don't know if Jake would admit this, but this is what you learned in Bible college, is when you read these names and you're like, I don't know how to pronounce, you just pronounce them with, with, with authority, like you know what you're doing, and then people are like, great, he knows exactly what he's doing. That's the secret for you. There you go, I'm passing that along. <laughs> the truth is, I think it's significant that Matthew starts his gospel by pointing to Jesus' history. Because again, when we know where we've been, helps us to understand where we're going. And I think looking at Jesus' background gives us insight into Jesus and how he relates to how, and how it relates to how Jesus relates to us. So, uh, we're going to jump in. Uh, this is going to be a sermon. We're going to have two points. Two points is all you got. And then some points of application, but two points. We're not going to hopefully spend too much time here. We'll see how long we go today. Number one, Jesus' genealogy teaches us that Jesus is a promised hero who will make all things right. Remember that promise that we've been waiting for as we continue to look in the Old Testament? Matthew tells us that Jesus is that hero. In fact, this is what it says, Matthew 1. It says, the book of genealogy of Jesus, Jesus who? Jesus Christ. Now, we're so used to hearing those two words together. We're used to hearing Jesus Christ. And, and sometimes we might think, well, that's Jesus' last name, right? They go together. You know, like Kevin Diet, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. The, the Greek translation of this word is, is Christos, which means Messiah, which means anointed one. Christ is his title. It's Jesus the Christ. Kind of like you would say for me, I'm I'm. I'm I, I'm Pastor Kevin, or I'm Kevin the Handsome, or I'm Kevin the Husband of Samantha. Like, that's what I'm known. Those are the titles you would give me. That's what I'm known as. And Jesus is known as the Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed One, the one we've beginning, the one that we've been waiting for from the very beginning to fix all that has gone wrong. So Matthew, in the very beginning, he says, Jesus is that one. But then, he wants to add a little evidence so we know that Jesus really is the one. So, again, verse 1, it says, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David and the son of Abraham. The question I come to when I see that is, is why? Why does, why does Matthew introduce Jesus as the son of David and the son of Abraham? And the reason is, is because he, he's looking back to some of those promises he made in the Old Testament. You see, David was Israel's greatest king. David brought Israel into their, their golden era politically, economically, and spiritually. And while David was king, God made a very specific promise to him. He said in 2 Samuel chapter 7, he said, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When the time comes that you go to rest with your ancestors, I will raise after you a descendant who would come from your own body. And I will establish his kingdom, and he will build my house, and I will establish his throne, the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. And verse 16, it says, your house and your kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. See, God made this unconditional covenant, unconditional promise to David, and said, look, David, here's, here's what's going to happen. It's going to begin with your son, Solomon. Solomon's going to build me a temple, but that's going to turn into something even greater. 
is going to turn into the promise of this everlasting kingdom. This everlasting kingdom that will never come to an end because there's going to come another son after Solomon. There's going to become a son of David, an ancestor of David who will rule forever, who will build a lasting house that will never end, who will sit on the throne forever. So Matthew wants to be clear. He says, Jesus is the Christ, the son of David. He's the one that they've been waiting for ever since God made that promise to David. This is Jesus, the one who's going to sit on the throne forever. But then Matthew goes a little further and says, Jesus is also the son of Abraham. And again, the promise to Abraham comes from the very beginning of the story of Abraham. In Genesis chapter 12, this is what God says. God says to Abraham, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great so that you will be a blessing. Verse 3, I will bless those who curse you. I will bless those who bless you. I will curse those who curse you. In you, all of the families will be blessed. This is a very specific promise to Abraham to give him uh, comfort and security, the things that we long for. But even greater than that, God is saying through your ancestors, there's going to come one who's going to bless all of the families of the earth. Again, this is the promise of a hero. This is the promise of Christ, the one who will fix all that's gotten wrong, the one who's going to become a blessing to all the earth by by giving his life on the cross. In fact, as you look at Matthew's gospel, the the, the book of Matthew, more than the other stories of Jesus, more than uh, uh, Mark and Luke, Matthew repeatedly connects Jesus to being the son of David and the son of Abraham. He wants to make sure that we grasp all those promises that we read in the Old Testament, that there's going to come one, there's going to come a Savior. Matthew wants us to know that Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. He's the Savior. He's going to be the one who comes and makes all things right. Number one, Jesus is a hero that will fix all that's gone wrong. Number two, God works through the messiest of situations. Now, In Jesus' day, your lineage, your family background was hugely important because it showed the world your your worth. It showed your value. It's kind of like this. Like, like, did anybody actually know who Meghan Markle was before she married into the royal family? Nobody did. She was some off-bit, some, I don't know, she was just some person. But then she married into the royal family, and she made herself the center of it, Right? Right? See, our significance is often tied to our family, the family we're from, or maybe from our ancestors. And so what happened, what would happen in in Jesus' day is people, kind of like us, when we fudge on our resumes, they would omit the worst parts of their family background. Well, we're going to skip over that uncle because we all have that uncle, right? We're going to skip over that person because they just, man, I don't want to be known for them. And they're only going to emphasize the good Now, when you look at all the names that Jesus is related to, there are some great men on that list. Verse 2, Abraham, who was the the father of the Jewish nation. Uh, Verse 8, we read of of David, who was Israel's greatest king. Verse 10, we read about Hezekiah, who was a king who brought tremendous spiritual reform into the people of God when they were struggling. But when you keep looking at all those names, you know those names that we have a hard time pronouncing? There are some improbable, dubious, shady 
characters that are listed in Jesus' genealogy. In fact, in that genealogy, there are five women that are listed, which we think in our day, well, well that's not a big deal. But in Jesus' day, uh, women were not considered important. They weren't considered important to your lineage. And so for Matthew to include women in, in his genealogy, like this was outrageous. This was, this was on, this wasn't supposed to happen. And not only that, three of those women, three of those women, they all were tied to having sex scandals. They were, they, they had some rough backgrounds. Verse three, it talks about Tamar. You want to read Tamar's story? You can look at Genesis chapter 38. Uh, Tamar, she seduced her father-in-law in order to produce uh, an heir. That's pretty sketchy. Verse 5, we read about Rahab. Uh, you can read about Rahab's story in Joshua chapter 2. Rahab was a prostitute. She was a prostitute that the story goes that she helped Israel spies when they entered in the promised land. But again, this is her background. She was a prostitute. Uh, verse, five, verse 6, we read about the wife of Uriah. She doesn't even get a name. This is actually Bathsheba. You can read about Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Bathsheba commits adultery with David and has a child with him in that regard. And then beyond these women, again, you just see this list of notorious sinners of messiness and brokenness. Verse 2, we read about Jacob. You can read about Jacob in the book of Genesis. He was a deceiver. He deceived his father and his brother and stole his brother's blessing. Jacob the deceiver. Verse 6, we read about David. You can hear David's story in 2 Samuel chapter 11. David murdered Uriah so he could cover up his sin with Uriah's wife Bathsheba. Verse 7, we read about Solomon. Solomon, uh, you can read about Solomon's story in 1 Kings chapter 11. Solomon had 300 wives and 700 concubines. See, some guys collect baseball cards. He collected wives. Like, this is what he did. He had so many of them. Uh, you go on. Verse, verse 7, 8, and 10, we read about Rehoboam, Abijah, Jer, uh, Jehoram, and Manasseh. These men are described in Scripture as being wicked and evil kings. Again, you look at this genealogy. Jesus didn't fudge on it. There are some dubious characters here. You think your family Thanksgiving is rough? Imagine being in Jesus' background and all the baggage they've got to deal with. And you think about this, and you're like, here's the Son of God. Here's God in the flesh. Yet his family tree is full of screw-ups and baggage. Maybe like some of us. Our background isn't perfect. There's some messiness, some brokenness, some baggage. And the good news is, the good news is that your mess and your brokenness, they don't stop the mission of God. It doesn't stop the mission of God. See, I think this genealogy is a reminder that God doesn't work through perfect people. God doesn't work through perfect people. God brings redemption and works through broken people, like you and I, where he begins to re redeem that brokenness and turns our story into something beautiful. In fact, when we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, I mean, here's... <laughs> Here's the summary of this whole passage. Is that despite the messiness 
of Jesus' background, of where he came from, of his family line. God works through it and brings Jesus, the Christ, the Messiah, the one that will make all things right. And that teaches us that no level of brokenness, no level of brokenness can stop the promises of God. Is that encouraging to you? To know that no level of mess that we create, mess that we suffer through, mess that we grow up in, that doesn't stop the promises of God from coming to fruition. I don't know about you, but that's good news for me. That is great news to me. Now, here's where we shift to say, okay, that's great. And what does it mean to us? I got three things. Number one, I want you to know that your mess is welcomed here. See, sometimes people think that the church, some people think that the church, and oftentimes we church people think the same thing. We think that the church is, is a place where good people come to do good things and to worship God and to be blessed by God. But you know, the longer I follow Jesus, the longer I live my life as a Christian, the more I realize that is not the story of Scripture and that is not the story of the gospel. See, the gospel says that you and I, we are separated from God because of our sin. But God, in his love for us, he sent Jesus to the cross to suffer in our place. You know the only prerequisite for us to receive his grace, to receive his sacrifice on the cross, is simply that we have to acknowledge our sinfulness. We have to acknowledge that we aren't good enough, that we are broken, that we are in need of a Savior. Therefore, the church can't be a place of good people. It's a people who recognize we're not good enough. We can never be good enough. That is what the church is supposed to be. I mean, Scripture says God comes for sinners, for those in need. Matthew chapter 2. Jesus says it's not those who are well that need a doctor, but those who are sick. Jesus says, I did not come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners. Again, you look at who God chooses to bring the Savior of the world in. He chose prostitutes and adulterers and murderers and evil kings. God brought our Savior out of that mess. And I just, I got to think that God wants us to know. Whatever your mess is, whatever your background is, whatever your baggage is, God can redeem that. And he can do amazing things through the rubble and through the mess of your background. See, here at Restoration Church, we have these family values, which are values that we want to be the way that we interact with one another, how it shapes how we do life together, how we interact with and love one another. And one of those values is that we celebrate progress rather than perfection. And what that means, sometimes, again, we walk into church and we're tempted to look like we have it all together. We're tempted to walk into church, put a smile on our face, and somebody's like, how's your week? And we're like, oh, it was really good. God bless you. I'm blessed. When in reality, life's a mess. Reality is we're struggling with this and that. We're hiding the pain and the hardship and the struggle. What this value means is you don't have to pretend to have it together. Restoration is a place that we're not expecting perfection. 
Your messiness is welcomed here. This is a place where it's okay to not be okay. But here's the key, is we don't stay that way. This is a place where it's okay to not be okay, but it's not okay for us to stay that way. Because when we're real with our messiness, when we're real with our baggage, with our junk, listen, that is when we allow God to begin to heal it, to redeem it, and to fix those things that have gone wrong within us. And so the question for you this morning is, where are you at today? I'm asking you to have a little bit of courage. I'm asking you to be honest with your struggle. Where are you at today? What's broken around you? Maybe it's your marriage. Your marriage, if you're going to be honest, is a wreck. You're not sure how long you're going to make it. Can we acknowledge that? Can we just be honest with that? Maybe you're struggling and dealing with your kids. Maybe you've got toddlers and like, I don't even like these kids anymore. Whose are they? Maybe you've got teenagers and you're like, I don't like these anymore. Whose are they? Maybe you've got adult kids and you're like, I don't even want to know them anymore. Can we just acknowledge parenting is hard? Do you think you're the only one that goes through that? I'm asking you to have courage. Maybe, maybe you're just struggling with work. Like, man, I, I hate working in this place. The environment is horrible. I don't even know if I should be working. I'm struggling with that. Can we just acknowledge that? Maybe you're struggling with your finances. Really, if you're going to be honest, you're up to debt and your eyes, you're up to your eyes in debt. You just acknowledge that? Maybe you're struggling with your mental health. Anxiety is running rampant. There, there's, there's depression. You're in this funk that you can't seem to get out of. Can we, can we just be honest with where we are today? Maybe you're struggling with an addiction. Lust or alcohol or food or social media or shopping or whatever it is. See, if we keep trying to hide it, do you realize that we miss out on redemption? In fact, there's a pastor named J.D. Greer, and this is what J.D. Greer said. He said, if you expose your sin, Jesus covers it. He heals it. He redeems it. But if you cover your sin, Jesus will expose it. So that's what I'm asking you to do. And this place, it's a place, to, it's okay to have some mess. And when we can be honest with that, that's when we allow God to begin to heal and to redeem. In fact, let me just throw this in. Jake already talked about life groups kicking off. And I'll tell you, this is one of the most practical places and practical reasons to be in a life group. Because sometimes it's a little awkward to come and share your, your, your deepest secrets on Sunday morning when there's 120 people in the room. But you know, when you're in a group with people who, who love you, who pray for you every week, who know your story, and that's the opportunity for you to be real, to let the walls down, share some struggle. Life groups, they're amazing. Number one, application. Your messiness is welcomed here. Number two, Jesus is the Savior, the one who can fix what's gone wrong in your life. I think we can all agree, life is hard. In fact, when you look around the world, when you look around what's happening around us, 
It's hard. Our country is so incredibly divided. <laughs> There's all this animosity and bitterness on all sorts of, on everything. We've got news that are at our fingertips. We're constantly hearing about some new disease, some new scandal that's happening all throughout. You know, when we hear this, we put our hope in a lot of things that can't actually fix what's gone wrong. Do we really think that another politician will fix what's gone wrong that's been wrong in our country for hundreds of years? Do I really think that the Mariners making it to the playoffs is going to fix anything that's gone wrong in our country? Surprisingly, I have to say, no, it's not. I'm going to root for them, but it's not going to fix what's gone wrong. And it's not just a difficulty out in the world. Again, many of us are probably struggling with our own issues. And the question is, how do we find hope in the midst of our disappointments and our difficulties? How do we deal with our hurts and our pain? How do we find hope in the midst of sickness and bad health? There are several in our church struggling through that right now. How do you find hope in that? How do you balance parenting and, and work life? How do you find hope with a struggling marriage and struggling kids? How do you find hope with the mental health issues? Because let's just be honest. We look out to the world to fix a lot of those things. I mean, maybe, maybe this is just me. But I find myself when I'm struggling, this is one of the things I often say is if I can just get to the weekend, if I can just get to this weekend, then things will get better and things will settle down. Or I'm like, hey, Sam, I need a vacation. Give me a vacation to look forward to because if I can just get to the beach, then things will get better, Right? We tell ourselves things like this. If I can just get through this season, if I can just get through this school year, if I can just get through the holidays, if I can just get through this, this depression, if I can just get through this season, then things will be better. We think if I just had a little bit more money, then things would be better. If I could just follow all the religious rules, then God would bless me and things would be better. And then when we can't find something like that to fix what's gone wrong in us, we, we begin to turn to other things. We turn to an addiction. And we think, you know, if I can just focus on this and forget my pain for a little while and cover my pain, then I, I don't solve the problem, but at least in that moment, I feel better in that moment. And ultimately, none of that is ever going to fix what's gone wrong with us. That's not going to fix the hurt and the pain. Because the answer is not found in another season. The answer to our struggle is not found in a better spouse. It's not found in a better job. It's not found in improved health. It's found in a Messiah. It's found in the Savior. And this is what Matthew is saying, that Jesus, he is our hope. He is our Savior. He's the one who will fix what's gone wrong in our world and in our lives. And here we are, we're looking for all these other things. And Matthew is saying, no, Jesus is the answer. Jesus is the one who will fix what's gone wrong in you. Jesus is the one who meets us where we are no matter how big of a mess we're in. He takes that pain. He takes that hardship. And when we surrender into a relationship with him, when we follow him, he redeems that pain. He redeems that hardship. He brings beauty out of the ashes. And that is marvelous.
And the church is people, the church is full of people just like that. The church is full of people who are ain'ts. They ain't got it all together. They ain't perfect people. But when they were real with God, God began to redeem their story, and that's when they become saints. Number three, we need to keep trusting in the promises of God. Again, we think about those promises that God made to David and Abraham. They waited for a long time. But God proved that he is a promise keeper. Not a single one of those promises were broken. In fact, as a church, do you realize this is one of the reasons why we gather with the people of God? To remind ourselves, to remind ourselves of the promises of God that they can be trusted, that they can be believed, that we can cling to these promises. That as we gather and remind each other of the promises of God, we may be in the middle of a mess, but we've got people who are reminding us, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. That is where God gives us hope and courage and joy. So this morning, I wrote down just a few of these promises. Which promise do you need to hear this morning? God promises that he will always be with us. God promises that he designed you with a purpose. God promises that his love knows no end. His love for you knows no end. God promised to give you not just life, but abundant life. God promises to comfort us in the middle of whatever trials that we are facing. God promised to finish what he has started inside of us. God promised that he will allow us to experience peace. God promised that he is working things out for our good and for his glory. Even when we can't see it or feel it, he is working things out for us. God promises rest for souls who are weary. God promises eternal life to all who place their faith in him. I want you to know. I want you to know and to believe that God is faithful. That God is faithful in all of these promises. Whatever you are facing, keep trusting, keep believing, keep holding on to these because he is faithful and he is the one that is the answer that we are looking for who will solve what's gone wrong in our heart and in our lives and in our world. This is why I can say this morning I am thankful that Matthew starts his story, the book of Matthew, by pointing to where Jesus came from. Because I don't know about you, but that gives me hope today. That despite the messiness of my family tree, despite the messiness of my life, God brought salvation into the world. And I know that God is in work, at work in me and through me. And we know God is, work, is at work in you and through you to redeem your mess and your background for your good and for his glory. Let's pray.